This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you, church. It's very good to meet you all. As, uh, as Tim mentioned, I, I, um, we met... Oh, if it, does anybody need a Bible? If so, can you raise your hand and we'll throw one at you? Or, or hand it to you, I don't know. Um, perfect. So, yeah, uh, um, my wife and I were in, in Ireland around the same time as Tim and Grace were in uh, Croatia. And we would see each other at conferences over in Europe. And now we actually see each other at conferences here in America, so it's great. Uh, we've had a, a, a long friendship in that way. And um, a little bit of background, I yeah planted a church in Waterford City, which, uh, does anybody have any Waterford crystal in their home? Nobody? Okay, that's all right. You do, Tim? Yeah. Oh, I'm proud of you. Um, so if you've heard of Waterford crystal, awesome. It's uh, That comes from our city. That's our only claim to fame in, in Ireland. That and, and it's called the sunny southeast, which is a very relative statement because that means it rains um, like 358 days out of the year instead of 360. So um, yeah, so that makes it sunny. Um, so anyway, uh, we've been back in the States for a little about three and a half years, almost four years actually, uh, and we are now replanting a church in Pleasanton, California, which is in the East Bay um, of San Francisco. And um, I'm in town, so I, I thought I'd reach out, and it's really, really great to be here with you guys today. So thank you for having me. I'm going to be talking about community uh, this morning, and, and um, uh we're going to use a passage in Acts chapter 2 to springboard off of, but the teaching will be more thematic than verse by verse this morning. So would you please stand with me as we read the word, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I will be reading out of the ESV today. Uh, I know you're probably used to New King James. I apologize for that, kind of. Um, and the, the scripture will all be on the screen. So if you find it easier to follow along in the same translation, you can just look up. So we'll read, I'll pray, and then you can sit back down. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have saved us into this family, God into your community, into your people. Today, as we talk about some of these things that are so important, so near to your heart, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts that we could receive them. God, would you open our minds to understand these things? And would you, Lord, not let us leave this place unchanged today, God. Wherever we're at, Lord, would you meet us there? And would you confront and encourage and build up? Um, 
Lord, change us by your work. So we love you. We commit this time to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So as I said, I'm, I'm speaking on, uh, on community today. And, um, and you know, I, I read a couple articles a while back on the, um, and they're secular articles. They're on the correlation between social media and isolation. And um, it's, it's really an interesting time that we live in uh, today. You know, we're, we are um, more connected than we've ever been, yet more isolated than ever as well. Most of us, if not all of us, are holding one of these devices in our pockets, whether it be Android or Apple, no judgment. But most of us probably have a smartphone. And on our smartphones, most of us probably have social media platforms of different descriptions on that. And, and, and the strange thing is, is, is in there, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of people that we call friends or followers, depending on the platform. And we interact with those people on some level or another on a daily basis. But, but the depth of all of those relationships is exceedingly shallow. As, as I was thinking through this, I had a visual, and, and I, I'm careful not to call it a vision because I don't think it's that spiritual. I think it's just an, a helpful illustration. But I had a visual in regards to social media and our relationships on social media. Um, I live on the coast in the Bay Area, and if you've ever been um, to the Pacific Ocean, I'm sure you have, and stood out and looked. It's just a vast ocean as far as the eye can see, just blew in every direction. And, and, my, and my visual was that. It was an ocean as, as vast as the, as the Pacific, um, beautiful and awe-inspiring, but it was only an inch deep. And so though it looks really beautiful and really impressive from a distance, no matter how far you wade in, no matter how far in you go, you don't find depth of any kind. And I kind of feel like that's what social media friendships are like. Man, it's vast. There's hundreds and thousands of people that you can connect with and communicate with on a daily basis, but there really isn't depth of any kind there. And so these articles that I was reading, uh, one was from NPR, and the other one was from Psychology Today, so both secular outlets. They were both saying, talking about isolation, that isolation produces anxiety and depression. The studies show that. And then they said that anxiety and depression, in turn, cause people to isolate further. And then that isolation produces more anxiety and depression, and, and the cycle continues. And it's this vicious cycle that so many can get into. And, and what they're showing in the articles is that social media not only doesn't help in this cycle of isolation, anxiety, and depression, but fuels it. But fuels it. I'm going to read you a couple quotes out of these articles. The Psychology Today article said this. Said the relatively modern phenomenon of social media and its associated technology adds a new dimension to loneliness and anxiety by offering the young person a way of directly quantifying friendships. And I would say not just young people, but people. So it offers people a way of directly quantifying friendships. 
viewing the friendship networks of others for comparison, and providing immediate information about social events. You can compare your own popularity with that of your peers and manage that adolescent fear of missing out or FOMO. I guess that's a thing. By, I've never heard of it, but by continuing by continually monitoring what's going on socially. So it's easy to see, they say, how technology use can take the place of more traditional social interaction and provide a yardstick for one's popularity, or more significantly, one's feelings of loneliness and alienation. Now, the the NPR article referenced a study from the American Journal of Preventative Medicine that showed that people who use social media outlets more frequently, their number is 58 or more times a week. I don't know why they picked 58 or more times, but that's what they picked. Had more than three times the odds of perceived social isolation than those who visited less than nine times a week. They hypothesized the cause of this. They say you might watch all these interactions where it seems like everyone else is connecting. And that could lead to feeling excluded. The images of other people's seemingly perfect, notice the word seemingly, seemingly perfect vacations, homes, and lives, even though those are not likely to represent reality, can make you feel like you're missing out. This is interesting, isn't it? We're living in the middle of this tech era, a time that is ruled and governed by social media outlets of of various descriptions. And all of the social media outlets are promising friendship and notability and popularity, followers and ultimately, community. It's all about connection, is what they claim, right? But these social media outlets that are making those promises are actually bearing the bad fruit of isolation, anxiety, and depression. Wow. And these are studies coming from secular sources, And we could take that and be like, oh, social media is evil and wrong, and we should all get off of social media. But I don't actually agree with that. In fact, that would be rather hypocritical because I think we're live streaming on Facebook right now. I hope those of you who are watching from home don't feel too bad about yourselves right now. (laughs) I don't think that social media, in fact, I know social media is not the ultimate problem here. The true problem is way older and way deeper than this. I would like to make the case that you can trace this issue of isolation and and isolation being destructive all the way back to the beginning of humanity. And I would also like to make the case this morning that the only solution true solution to this problem that we're all observing is Jesus. 
So I've got five points this morning. Here they are. I'm gonna, they're on the screen. I'm going to tell you what they are. If you're note takers, you can jot them down and then fill them in. Five points are this. One, community is in God's very nature. We're going to start in the beginning. We're going to talk about God. Number two, we were created for community. Number three, sin broke and breaks community. Number four, Jesus redeems us to community. And number five, the church is community. Five simple points. So let's jump in. Number one, community is in God's very nature. You know, the the God of the Bible is a triune God. In other words, God is Trinity. He reveals himself as that from the very start. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1.26, we see the first seed of the Trinity being revealed in Scripture when it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God, I believe wholeheartedly in that um, plural statement about himself is, is revealing that he is three in one. It's the biblical and the historical understanding of God that he is one God that eternally exists in three distinct persons. And though we don't see the word Trinity in Scripture anywhere, we do see the triune God on every page. We call it Trinity because it's just a word that we use to to explain what we see throughout Scripture. One of my favorite verses that shows the the triune God in a single verse is in 2 Corinthians 3.14. It's a benediction of Paul to the Corinthian church, and it's beautiful. When he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The blessings of our triune God be upon you. It's wonderful. And so there's been a universal understanding within orthodoxy from the start of the church on the Trinity of our God. There's also been a lot of challenges against that. Some of the biggest conflict uh, in church history have been over the deity of Christ or, or, or the Trinity. That's why Santa Claus punched Arius in the face. If you, if you study church history, that's probably happened. I don't know. But it's been a universal understanding, and, 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 and as you look throughout um, uh, church documents throughout history, both the new and old shows, um, shows the Trinity. I, I really love one of the modern, one of the really recent um, uh, catechisms that we have here in the church. If you're familiar with catechisms, they're a question and answer way to teach children especially, but teach the church uh, theology about God. The Catholic Church has a lot of catechisms, but there's some wonderful um, uh, catechisms within the Protestant tradition as well, like the Westminster Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism. But there's a new one that came out recently that, that Tim Keller put out called the New City Catechism. Has anybody heard of the New City Catechism? If you have children especially, I really encourage you to look at it. It's an app that you can get on your phone or your iPad, and it walks through biblical theology and question and response. 
And there's a short answer that kids can memorize, and there's a long answer that, that adults can memorize, and it's, it's just wonderful. My, I've got a, a six-year-old and a five-year-old, and I love going through these questions and answers with them. But the second and third questions of the New City Catechism uh, go like this. I think they present the nature of God in a really succinct way. Question number two is, what is God? The answer is, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. That's the short answer that kids memorize. But it goes on. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. Amen. Question number three is, how many persons are there in God? The answer, there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. If you want something a bit more historic that presents the Trinity in a beautiful way, the Nicene Creed from 325 AD says it this way. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, my favorite part, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. So God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. We agree on that. Good. I knew we did. The implications, though, why did I spend this much time talking about the doctrine of the Trinity? Because there's important and there's implications that come with this doctrine. And the implications are vast. We could take a long time talking about various implications of the nature of God being triune. But I think one of the most significant implications of our triune God is it shows us, it tells us that God himself not only is in community, but God himself is community. God himself is community. In his very nature, God is a loving community from eternity past. And part of what makes this so important and so significant is because through this, God is able to exist as love. As the scriptures say, God is love. He's able to exist as love without dependence on anyone or anything beyond himself. And this is important to recognize because we got to understand that the biblical understanding of love is different than the world's understanding of love. There's that, that worldly proverb of, of, hey, if you want to love somebody else, you have to first love yourself. Have you heard that? You may have said it at some point. That's straight up heresy. It's a lie from the pit of hell because self-love, I'm sorry if I'm bursting a bubble, not sorry, self-love's not love. Church, according to the Bible, self-love is sin. It's selfishness. Love, by definition, in Scripture, is giving yourself to somebody else. It's making a sacrifice 
for the object of your love, another person. When Jesus said, hey, love your your neighbor as yourself, he's not saying, oh, you better love yourself first. He's like, no, you're a sinful person. You love yourself by nature. It's time to turn that away from you and love somebody else because that's real love. There's no greater love than this, than a man lays down his life for his friend. And Christ laid down his life for his enemies, you and I, while we were still enemies of his. So if that's the biblical definition of love, in order for God to be love without being dependent on something other than himself, whether it be his creation or something else, there has to be multiple persons within the Godhead. And so because God is triune, there can be from eternity past a directional, loving, giving relationship contained within God and his very nature. Isn't that cool? First time I came across that, it blew my mind. That might be old news to you, but it never ceases to to amaze me. God is love. How? Well, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. Well, anyway, the love is directional. Okay. So that's important. It's important to understand that. But what's, I think, equally important to that, and this is where it really impacts us, is that, that God, in his communal nature, in his love nature, He created us, his image bearers, as communal beings. We are created as as image bearers, bearing the image of God. That's the imago Dei. And part of that image bearing is that he, as a God who is community, created us for community. That brings us to our next point, which I just said. We were created for community, flowing out of God's nature. Genesis chapter 1, I just love tying things back to the beginning of this book. Uh, I think Tim Mackey, a, a wonderful scholar, said that like just about any doctrine or theology that's significant in Scripture, you can find in the first three pages of the Bible, <laughs> at least a seed of it. It's wonderful. We were created for community. We see it from the start. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28 says this, Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, listen to this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God is a community of love in his nature and he created us to live in loving community. God is a community of love and and he created us to live in loving community. We see it there when it says... Um, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's not just saying, hey, have a lot of babies for the sake of having a lot of babies. Some people might interpret it that way, but that's not the heart of God in that he's saying, hey, build community. I didn't create you to just be on your own and do your thing. I created you to build and live in community. Genesis chapter 2, 18, the next chapter 
God makes an observation that we love to quote at weddings when it says, God, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper for him. And though we tongue-in-cheek use that in weddings in reference to men needing the spouse in order to not die and all that kind of stuff, that's, and you know, I think that's true in my life, but that's not actually what God is primarily saying here. He's not talking about men needing women or women needing men primarily, though that's part of it. He's talking on a larger picture about the fact that humans are not supposed to be alone. Humans are intended to live in community. That's what we were created for. That's part of our Imago Dei. And this is why isolation is damaging. The studies I referenced earlier show that, but this is the reason for it. Why does isolation produce anxiety and depression? Because it's not good that man should be alone. We're not supposed to be. That's it. Communities are created intent, so when we're not living in community, we do not thrive. It's as simple as that. Oh, but I'm a lone wolf. Oh, I'm an introvert. I'm not saying everybody has to be a social butterfly, but we're created to live in a community. And I want to notice the, the, the nature of the community that God created us for, because it's important that we understand what this community looks like. According to even just looking at Genesis here, God's intended community is first loving. I mentioned that. But second, it also shares a purpose or a mission. God's design for community from the start is that we would live in loving harmony with Him and with one another. His design is that we would serve and love God by obeying Him. And, and, and that was the, hey, do these things that I'm calling you to do in the garden. Tend to it and take care of it and stuff. And hey, don't eat of this tree. You can eat of everything else. That was the, our first parents' opportunity to love God by just obeying him and walking with him. They walked together in the garden. There was, there was intimacy. There was communion happening in the garden in our created intent. And then there was the call to love one another. It's not good for you to be alone. Here's a helper for you. There's that mutual help and care that was created from the start, preferring and complementing one another. And I mean, like, not like, hey, your hair looks nice, but I mean completing one another. It's the complementarian union. So there's that love-based community of pouring out for God and for others, but there's also community has from the start, and this is so important, always revolved around a shared purpose or mission. God didn't put our first parents in the garden and say, hey, just have a good time and have a lot of babies and, and hang out. He gave them a job. A joyful one, but a job. He gave them a mission. Tend to this garden. Subdue the earth. I have no idea what that means. But it, they had a job to do. And the reason that community in God's design has a mission is because a community without a mission is a selfish community. 
A community without a mission really cannot be a community that is a loving community. If the community is coming together just to serve one another, then ultimately that becomes selfish, where it's all about our group taking care of us, forget about everybody else. But that's never been the call of God. The community is to come together, loving and serving one another, loving and serving God, and then being about God's work. There has to be an outward expression if it's going to be a biblical community. You know what that is in the church? What's the Great Commission? We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But if our parents first, our first parents would have walked in this, in this, in this harmonious, loving community, doing what God asked them to do, they'd be naked and free, and we'd all be having a great time in paradise still. That'd be awesome. Fortunately, that's not what happened. You know the story. Genesis 3 comes along and everything starts to fall apart. Our first parents sinned against God and against one another, and that brings us to our third point. Sin broke initially and continues to break community. Sin broke and breaks community. In Genesis 3, the the account of the fall, what we see when you look at it is a systematic deconstruction of our created intent. If our created intent is to love God, love one another, and be on his mission, does that sound familiar from the New Testament, by the way? The new commandment he gives? The great commission he gives? Anyway, if that's our created intent, love God, love one another, and be on mission, tend to his, you know, do the job he called us to do, we see a a systematic deconstruction of that in Genesis 3. The serpent arrives. You remember the story? And the first thing he does is he calls the command of God, he calls the word of God into question. And our first parents, our first mother specifically, began to doubt or disbelieve God's word. And from that disbelief, it led them to betray their mission. Rather than caring for the creation that was entrusted to them, they abused it. They used it for their own selfish gain by eating from the only tree that they weren't allowed to eat from because they wanted to be like God. So they failed their mission. And from that failure, from that disbelief in God and His Word, that rejection of their purpose, the community that they were created for began to fall apart. And break down. That rebellion against God broke communion with Him. When they were once walking with Him freely in the garden, you remember the story, they began to hide themselves from Him. And then as God called out to Adam, hey, where where are you at? He said, you know, what did you do? And, And Adam, immediately, the very first thing that you hear humans doing after the fall is turning on one another. That woman that you gave me, it was all her fault. (laughs) We still do that today. And we're like, what? I wasn't even there. Anyway. But you so it's it's you see the idea, right? There's this, there's this thing that happened in the beginning where there's a failure to fulfill God's mission. There's an alienation from God, and there's a deconstruction and a destruction of community. That happened in the start, and that has been the pattern of history ever since. 
And as you track through the grand arc narrative of Scripture, you see that happening over and over again on bigger and bigger scales, right? Selfishness destroying community because love is absent. Not only do you see that in the arc of Scripture, but you see that in the arc of history as well. And you can look around through your history books and in the news today, and you can see how sin, which at its core is selfishness, which is the antithesis of love, breaks community, and that's why our, our world is so broken. And when we look on the news and we look on the big scale things, we can see this every time we turn around. You can see it in the political polarization of our nation. You can see it in the, in the racism and in the, in the sexism and in the, in the reaction to those things. You can see it in socioeconomic, I mean, all the things that you could talk about all day long and say how broken our world is. Well, that's because sin breaks community. But you know what? I don't want to talk about those big things today. Because when we're talking about those big things, it's easy for us to say, hey, you know, that's happened and that's wrong and almost make ourselves a victim of it. I want to bring it a lot closer to home this morning for us and look at our personal lives returning to what we talked about in the start. In this age that we live in, we are increasingly isolated because we are influenced, whether we believe it or not, or whether we want to be or not, to some degree or another, we're influenced by the spirit of our culture. And the spirit of our culture here in the West is individualism, independence, and success. It's the American dream. It's built into our DNA as, as Americans. In the West here, we find ourselves living in this incredibly fast-paced, competitive environment where the end of all is being successful, wealthy, powerful, and glamorous. And that is so dangerous and so damaging. Because the narrative that we're fed with this, it comes with all of these, these godless proverbs. I like to call them godless proverbs. Things that we hear and sometimes repeat that we don't really pay attention to but are just completely opposite of the biblical teachings. You've heard them. You've maybe said them. Hey, man, you just you got to watch out for number one. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. I'm from the Bay Area. Everything's about climbing up the corporate ladder or making it big, you know, and... And then that one I shared with you earlier, you've got to love other, yourself before you know how to love anybody else. All these kind of things, they're everywhere. I mean, Oprah just throws them out left and right, right? I think, I have actually haven't watched Oprah in 20 years. Sorry, I'm not trying to bash Oprah. Kind of. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and you know, this is so prominent and so present. Guys, you live in Las Vegas. I can only imagine. I live in the Bay Area. It's probably different, but similar. It's, it's like, you know the way I describe it, the way I feel it at least? The, the, the spirit of this world, it's like, a, it's like a rip current, like a riptide. If you ever swam in the, in the ocean when there's a strong riptide, you know what it feels like? It either takes you out or down the beach. 
And if you're not constantly aware of your you know, beach towel and umbrella or whatever, if you let down your guard for a second, man, you're miles away. It's happened to me before. It's like, where in the world? Luckily, down the beach, not out to sea. And, and the influence of the culture that we live in is constant pressure pushing against us, drawing us to that individualism that the end of all is success and the legacy that you're leaving for your children in material possessions or your nest egg or the fame or the whatever it may be. And all of that is a lie from the pit of hell because it feeds our, our selfish flesh and it alienates us from true community. It alienates us from true community. You know, one of the ways that I see it like most prominent in myself and just about everybody else that I interact with is in how we've caught to a place as a society where busyness is like a virtue. And think about the last time you, you saw somebody, maybe even this morning, and said, how was your week? Nine times out of ten, at least in the Bay Area, I can't speak to Las Vegas, nine times out of the day, out of ten, it's, it's all great, great, oh yeah, it's been hard, oh, busy. Busy always finds its way in there at some point or another when you're greeting one another. Maybe not here, I don't know. But, it, but where I'm at, it, it is. Oh, yeah, man, oh, I've been so busy. Yeah, life's crazy right now. Oh, yeah, man, work's busy. Busy, 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 busy. And it's just like this whole thing where you don't even realize you're doing it, but you're just like comparing how busy one another are, and then you go your ways. <laughs> And then you feel important because it's like, I'm busy because I'm important because I've got things to do. And oh man, I feel great about it. But you know what that, at least on a subconscious level, do you know what that says to somebody when you're greeting them and saying you're busy? At least on a subconscious level, it says, I'm too busy for you. I'm too busy for you. That's what it says. And, and, and we don't think that when we're saying it. That's not what I think when I'm saying it. I'm just like literally talking about how my week is full. But, but that's what I mean, that rip current. So I'm not trying to condemn you for saying I'm busy all the time. But I, I would encourage you, like, think about it for a second. Think about it for a second. There's a lot in life. But you know what? What are you doing next week? Anyway, okay. So there's that. That's, that's coming against us in a... Real way, and I said, as I said in the start, we're, we're beginning to see the fruit of this broken system. Social media is just a cog in that wheel. I believe wholeheartedly that we can, we can uh, redeem social media and use it for, for wonderful purposes. Streaming church services for those who aren't able to make it. Um, Sharing scripture or things that God's, you know, there's lots of things that you can do. I'm not condemning it. I'm not saying to get off of it. But what I am saying is that social media is not where you go to find community. It's not. Because the whole thing with social media, which is a part of this whole spirit of the world, in this whole worldly air, is its convenience. It's you get to present yourself how you want to be presented you get to interact with people on an extremely shallow level at your convenience. You feel good about the connections you made, but there is zero cost involved. 
You get to feel good about the activism that you did in one way or another by putting a thing on your you know, profile picture. It does all these kind of things that really cost nothing but make you feel like you've done something real. And to not condemn that, I will say that's not real community because love, by definition, is costly. If you love somebody, it means you have to actually give some of yourself to them. Love is an action and it's costly. And it is very difficult to find that on that platform. That's all I'm going to say about social media. So it's the great tragedy of our existence that we find ourselves in, or a great tragedy of our our existence. There's a struggle happening within everybody where there's a God-given need for community. That part within us that we were created for this and we long for it. And that comes against our inherited sin nature that rules us apart from Christ that is just selfish to the core. And this is that self-destructive cycle. Is that a God-given need for humanity and a selfish sin nature just bashing off of one another. And it is a problem. So what's the answer to the problem? What's the Sunday school answer to every question? What's the answer to the problem? Amen, Jesus. And you know what? It's it's right most of the time. Jesus is the answer to the problem. Number four, Jesus redeems us to community. So the problem goes all the way back to creation. When sin entered the world, broke our first communion with God, and, and then broke community with one another. The solution then needs to resolve the root of the problem, not just the symptoms. That's why the answer isn't delete your Facebook or your Instagram. And the answer isn't just do more social things. The answer has to deal with the root of the problem, not just the symptoms. So Jesus came to this earth to do that very thing. Jesus came to this earth to undo the work of our first father, Adam. To fix what's broken at the very core of humanity. Look at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 16 with me. It's it's on the screen. When it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death reigned through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. So the source is Adam. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was, listen to this, who was a type of the one who was to come. That's Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There's a reversal. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. One sin brought many death. One death freed many from sin. That's what it's saying. Jesus came to reverse the work of Adam. As he walked on the earth, Jesus, he was the first and the only man whoever fully and perfectly lived out our created intent. 
Jesus had an unbroken communion with the Father. He was tempted in all ways, but he did not want sin. He did not rebel against his Father. Jesus selflessly loved those around him. He gave himself. I mean, and we're not just talking about his sacrifice for us at the end of his life on the cross. I'm talking about from the start to the finish. If you read through the Gospels with the eyes of thinking Jesus became truly a man subject to all of the weakness and temptations that you and I are subject to, and just look at the way that he conducted himself. Look at the way that he poured out and poured out and poured out for those who, according to the world's standards, deserve nothing from him. Jesus was the perfect example of loving others as he had communion with his Father. And then Jesus fulfilled the mission and purpose that God had given him without wavering. What did he say at the end on the cross? He said, it is finished. He did what he came here to do and he finished it. Jesus, though he didn't sin, he gave himself freely to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He went to the grave. He was raised by the power of God, victorious over sin and death once and for all. He finished his mission. And so now because of that, because he lived out his created intent and he completed the mission he came to accomplish, now as we place our faith in Christ, we share in his identity. That completion of created intent is placed upon us and we are freed not just from the consequences of our sin though we are freed from that thank you Jesus we're not just freed from the consequences of our sin but we are freed from the power of sin we are set free by the blood of Jesus from that destructive pattern that we're caught in helplessly apart from him that's the gospel Through the work of Jesus, God restored our communion with him by breaking down the barrier of sin, freeing us from the prison of our destructive selfishness so that we could love him. So God restored that first part of our created intent through Jesus. The second thing, through the, the blood of Jesus, not only are we reunited with God or united with God, but we're also saved to a redeemed community as he adopts us into the family of God. We are saved to a community, a community that of course shares a very important mission, which is the great commission to make disciples, to further the kingdom of God. You see it in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17, when it says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So church, by grace, the grace of Jesus, we are set free to walk in our created intent. We're set free to walk in communion with God, community with one another, fulfilling the mission and purpose that God has in our lives. And I mentioned we have power to do this, and we do. The Spirit of God, if you're a believer in Jesus today, is alive within you and empowers you to service and empowers you to righteousness. You have been given power over sin and death and power for the the work of God, but does that mean that we're going to be perfect at it? No. By no means. We're saved into this community of God and this family of God, but because we are still not made perfect, this family oftentimes becomes dysfunctional. And though we are walking in a progression of righteousness, we still, if we're living in community with one another, we'll hurt each other. If you've been a part of church for more than 10 minutes, you've probably been hurt by a church person. Just nod if you, if you felt that. Because we are sinners, saved by grace, but we're still going to mess up and fall down. And so you know what that means to me? It means that as we're saved into this family, our call is not to be perfect. Now, it's not to give permission for sin and be like, I'm just a sinner. Sorry, bro. Poke you in the eye. That's not, that's, we're not going to give permission for hurting one another. But you know what that means is that when one of the most defining factors of a Christian community is not us being perfectly righteous, but being people who are living in a pattern of repentance with one another. The thing that's going to shine the brightest from the community of God to the world is not our righteousness and perfection, because if we try to just show that, we're going to wind up being self-righteous hypocrites. The thing that's going to show the world Jesus the most is that when we do sin and mess up, we put up our hands and say, I messed up, I repent, and I'm sorry. It's when we're a community that's willing to reconcile with one another. Because that's the work of Christ happening within us. A community who has rhythms of confession and repentance, and through those rhythms, progressing in righteousness. That's salt and light. Not moral perfection. That's not what we're fighting for. We're fighting for being sanctified by the grace of God together. And it goes both ways. It goes with being willing to confess and repent when you sin against somebody, but also being willing to forgive when somebody sins against you. There's a lot I could say about that, but I simply don't have time. So this brings us to the fifth thing, our final point, and that is that the church is community. When we understand the gospel in this light, when we understand that Jesus' work is not just saving us to heaven one day, but to the family of God today, that has an inheritance that will last forever, man, that changes the way we see church, doesn't it? I think you know this. I'm not assuming you don't, but the church is not something that we do on Sundays. 
Church is certainly not a building that we go to once or twice a week. Church is not organized functions that we participate in. Guys, church is you. Church is the family of God. You are the church today as you're sitting in those seats, listening to me preach the word to you, and you're also the church tomorrow when you wake up and get ready to go to work. Because church isn't something you do. Church isn't something you go to. Church is something that you belong to as a member, a family member, a body member, and you are never disconnected. I opened with Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to close with it, because what we have here is the earliest snapshot of the church. And though it's not something that we can take as prescriptive as we have to do exactly everything that it says to the T, because that could get really weird really quick, it is something that we can look at as a, as a descriptive model, if you know what I mean by that. Seeing the principles at place that are there and translating those to our context now, that's a really helpful thing to do. And it's super convicting. So let's just walk through that briefly together. What does this church look like as we really live it? It says verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In Acts 2.42, Calvary Chapel does very well. We're really good at teaching and we're really good at, at, at you know, fellowship and we're really good at you know, taking communion and praying together. And, and once we stop there, we, we do it very, very well. But as you read on, it becomes a lot more challenging. Verse 43 says, An awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Though I'd love to talk about that, that's not what I'm here for today. Verse 44, this is where it gets meaty. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as many as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see what they were doing? They were living lives of, of well, togetherness. It wasn't just once or twice a week, but they were living lives in a community all the time. And they were living lives of radical and sacrificial generosity towards one another. In the Western mindset, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, I want you to sell your nice shiny car and buy a beater because somebody in the church can't pay their mortgage. <laughs> what? That's my car. I worked hard for that. But these, this family have kids that are hungry at no fault of their own. Yeah but, yeah, but I worked hard for my car. That kind of thing makes us itch and tingle. Like, we don't want to do that. That's my stuff. And church, I'm not telling you to do anything specific. But I am challenging a little bit and pushing back a little bit on the self-consumed mindset that I have too. 
where I'm an individual and my stuff is my stuff, my life is my life, and I'll come here, we'll have a meal together, we'll hear a Bible study, but then we go on our ways and live our lives. That is not biblical community. Biblical community is a sacrificial giving of ourselves to one another. You know what? I'm not, I have no idea how well you do this, and please don't misunderstand me and think I'm pointing fingers, but I, I, when I observe myself on this, it is really hard. They were selling everything they had and distributing the proceeds. They were meeting in each other's homes, and honestly, where I come from, that's almost harder than the first one. They went to temple together and they would do things like this, but also day by day, they were in one another's homes eating meals together. That was communion. They would come together and have a meal. Whose house are we going to be at tomorrow night? Oh, so-and-so's. And there's this life happening together where the walls of homes and borders were not there. It was just this, this beautiful and wonderful thing. They were doing it with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God. And to speak to what Tim was talking about earlier, they, they had favor with all the people. You think our political climate is scary and bad? Theirs was way worse. Remember Saul of Tarsus? Yeah, he was a monster. He was actively going from city to city trying to drag Christians out by their hair and imprison and murder them. That's the kind of stuff they faced. Yet they still had favor with all the people. They worshiped God and lived in peace. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So church, I don't know about you, but when I think through that and work through it and look at it, I find myself longing for that. Because the Western church as a whole, we've drifted from that. We have. And that riptide of the spirit of the air, the cultural riptide that we face, has dramatically affected the way we do church. And I'm not proposing that you upside down the way the model of church that you do or anything like that. I'm just saying it's a, good, it's a helpful thing to reflect and look and say, we have largely, as Western Christians, become very consumeristic and selfish even in the way we approach church. And when I look at that, I have to repent. And I want to lean into true and biblical community. And that's my encouragement for you today. I don't even know how to tell you how to do that, but I want to challenge you to do it. To look at ways that you can turn outward and love on one another. I assume you guys are doing it well already, but we can always do it better. And if I can just give one more encouragement before I close in prayer, coming back to what we talked about in the start. I can only assume that in a group this big, there's at least somebody, if not several people in here today, who really identified with that feeling of isolation and anxiety and depression. I can only assume that there's people here that feel like, oh, that's me. I feel alone, and I feel really, really sad. And all I would say to you is Christ died to save you into his family, and you're not alone. Just look around you right now and you see a group of people who I believe are willing to love you. A group of people that are willing to embrace you. 
So don't walk out of this place today feeling alone because you're not. Reach out to somebody, even the person next to you, and share that with them. Pray with them. Okay, so church, as we're considering this true community, it's, it's worth acknowledging that it's, it's hard and it takes sacrifice and it takes time and it takes a shifting of priorities. But this is the very thing that Jesus commands us to do. Jesus left his disciples with what I'll leave you with today. John chapter 13, 34 through 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and even challenging words, God, that that cause us to to reflect and look inward and and recognize that there's a long way for us to go. And God, I just pray for me that you'll help me to walk in... um, true sacrificial love and generosity towards my brothers and sisters. You would help us, God, as your family to press in to one another. God, help us to to really live as a family. Help us to do that by the blood of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I do pray for those people here today who feel isolated, who feel lonely, who feel anxious, who feel depressed. God, not to oversimplify what they're going through, God. I do pray that your, your wonderful and abundant grace would just infuse their hearts today and draw them out and bring them to a place where they can just press into the family that you saved them to. God, would you tenderly care for those people today? So we love you, God. In Jesus' name.